Hey Siri, is there a God? It's all a mystery to me. Hey Siri, what's the meaning of life? We are all just a speck in the vastness of time and space, but don't let that dishearten you. It takes every single part of us to make the beautiful mosaic that is our universe. Aww. That's so sweet. <laughs> Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. We're your hosts, Madeline Ahern and David Wu. And in today's episode, we will be interviewing Shannon Botcher, formerly a general manager at Microsoft and now a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews, currently researching the ethics of artificial intelligence. Shannon was recently featured in a New York Times article titled, Can Silicon Valley Find God? What do you think, David? Can Silicon Valley find God? Why are you asking me? I figured the Cupertino boy would know. Well, the jury's still out on that one, but I will say that this episode certainly gave me some things to think about. Not only did we get a chance to discuss Shannon's fascinating research, we also talked about spirituality as a component of health and how technology can change the ways people explore their own spirituality. We hope you enjoy the show. So our first question, Shannon, is can you tell us about your path and how you came to focus on the ethics of artificial intelligence? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so this, uh, you know, my, I started my career in technology um, uh, back in uh, really 1992 and, and uh, have, have worked, worked in technology for 25 years. Um, and uh, about six years ago, my, my wife's career and my career were sort of on a collision course. And we decided to optimize uh, for some opportunities that she had. And at that time, um, our, our three boys were 11, nine, and four. And I thought it was a great time to sort of step into the lead parent role, uh, focus on them through their adolescent years. Uh, and as uh, part of that, to keep myself intellectually engaged, I went back to school, I studied world religions, uh, and then uh, made a proposal for this PhD project uh, where it really combined my technology career and uh, this intellectual pursuit around uh, spirituality, and which resulted in uh, this research on the intersection of artificial intelligence and spirituality. And I was very fortunate to have that proposal accepted at University of St. Andrews and have been uh, working on the research. And uh, Linda uh, Kinsler, who wrote the article in the New York Times, was a participant in that research. And um, was you know, did an amazing job on, on writing about it, and I uh, feel very fortunate for that. That's awesome. And you mentioned world religions. How did you come to engage with that topic? Why was that that the thing that you wanted to pursue? Part of it was uh, educating the boys. Um, we aren't re- raising them religiously in any particular um, organization, so we, we wanted to expose them to a wide variety of, of worldviews and, and thought patterns and. Um, so I wanted to learn myself and, and, and then in order to teach them. And so that's um, why I studied it. Um, and it, in addition, it's just been a, a, an interest of mine you know, throughout, my, throughout my life, really. And does that interest come from a, a personal background in religion or is it purely an academic interest? It's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think there is wisdom in all religions. And I think you know, I def- my definition of religion is that I associate it with an organization uh, in a group, uh, and um, that has a certain set of um, either uh, ideals or rules that sort of make you a member of that group or not. And um, I think of spirituality more as a fabric that's uh, more individually based, uh, where uh, people might 
their spirituality might be comprised mainly of religion and, and come from that organization that, that they've decided to be a part of. Um, but it all may also have uh, other aspects of life experience, uh, of, of relationships, of people that they, they've known, of uh, experiences that they've had. Uh, and so I would say, you know, I grew up Catholic uh, as part of that um, organization. And then right now I would consider myself to be uh, more spiritual than religious. And I sort of take um, insight and wisdom from many different backgrounds. That's really cool. And it's, it's funny that you say you're Catholic, but also spiritual. David and I were just discussing before this episode, <laughs> I am Catholic and David was saying he's more spiritual. I'd say more spiritual, agnostic, um, yeah. kind of, you know, I, I do think every major religion has its merits and its wisdom to it. Um, and I like to dabble, you know, read, read from each. So, <laughs> so yeah. I think it's cool. You cover both of our backgrounds a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's related to artificial intelligence, you know, part of what machines are very, very good at is, is um, categorization and to in, in putting things into groups um, and identifying similarities and, you know, so much of that has been used to uh, deliver information, um, you know, whether, you know, whether it's advertising or whether it's um, a feed or whether it's uh, search results. And, and so, um, to me, the, this, this idea of the, the groups that religious um, organizations make up and the way that technology views uh, groups and people and putting people into groups uh, is, a, is a really interesting intersection. I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about how you started, because I know you were at Microsoft for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. And then you decided to, to make the pivot partly to, you know, teach your kids, but um, about like, you know, world religions, but I was curious, why not teach them coding? And, uh, you know, do you ever miss your Microsoft days or, you know, like, could you kind of talk more about the, yeah, I mean, I mean, I had, I had a great career there. I, I, I you know, uh, I, you know, before that I was in Silicon Valley, I worked at Netscape. Um, and before that I was at uh, Accenture uh, for, for a number of years. And uh, I really did enjoy working on technology and, and especially at some of those companies where we had uh, the ability to, uh, you know, deliver at big scale, you know, like to, to lots and lots of people around the world. And so that was a, a real privilege. And so I do miss it. I, I miss the interaction. I miss the people. Um, as far as like, I mean, I, the kids, the kids, they, they learn other stuff too. You know, this was, uh, this was just one of the things um, that uh, was a centerpiece of you know what I wanted to do when I stepped away from my career was to was to focus with them on uh, their sort of spiritual journey uh, as well. So uh, so they you know we I teach them a bunch of other stuff too. Um, but you guys asked about the path and sort of the path on how it got to um, to this research project into this PhD. And so that's 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 the thread that was uh, connecting those things. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, could you tell us more about your research project, um, especially the one you know featured in the the New York Times article? Yeah, so that was uh, taking a look at um, people from uh, five uh, different religious backgrounds, and then also uh, people from a non-religious background. So we had six different uh, groups of people um, that participated in the research. Each of them interacted with. Uh, a simulation of an artificial intelligence uh, conversational entity. Um, so, and uh, the technology was, you know, a voice, uh, voice assistant. So I used uh, Amazon Alexa, uh, Google Home, 
uh, Siri. Uh, I also had a, an SMS, like a text-based uh, chatbot that they could interact with and uh, also internet searching, which you know, internet search is, is like one of the, the preeminent applications of, of artificial intelligence. And um, so people from each of those uh, backgrounds uh, interacted with these devices and uh, around existential topics, uh, you know, things like what happens when you die, what's the difference between good and evil, um, how should I think about uh, helping future generations. There were a set of uh, topics and questions where they interacted with these devices and the center of the research, the central question was around whether um, these devices and this, this experience with artificial intelligence had the potential uh, to influence that spiritual fabric uh, for people. And, you know, the short answer is yes. And, and then uh, it's sort of like, okay, so now what? And, and um, so, the, so the research was first to um, bring these two worlds together. Of, there's been a lot of scholarship on uh, what's called uh, theological reflection or sort of how people put together their, their spiritual worldview, their religious worldview. Uh, sort of philosophically. Uh, and then there's been research on human machine communication, um, which didn't have much to do with religious content. And so the project really brought those two ideas together of what happens when you ask Alexa these existential or these ontological questions. And then how do people feel about the answers that they get back uh, from them? And that, that leads down the path of, of ethics and and um, you know, how should these systems respond when you ask those kinds of questions? What, what sort of um, you know, uh, prosumed information or, or profile type of information should they use um, when, they, when they do answer those questions? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very likely uh, that these big companies, whether it's you know, Amazon or, or Facebook or Google, you know, based on your uh, purchase history, based on uh, your calendar entries, the, you know, the emails, the people that you exchange uh, communications with, your social networks, it's probably a pretty good chance that they have some sense of your spiritual orientation, especially if you're part of a, a formal organization. And so some of the ethical questions have to do with, you know, is that, should they use that information? They use it for, you know, selling you things online uh, and, and pushing information into your feed. Uh, should that should that also be used when when these kinds of bigger uh, life questions uh, come up? That's a really interesting topic. And so how how I understand your research is the art, artificial intelligence algorithm was answering the questions differently based off of religion. To what degree do you think that the algorithm has like a I would say a duty maybe to expose people to the beliefs of different religions? Right. So you have a kind of an in-group bias if you're Jewish, say, and you're only seeing you know, exposure to Jewish material, to what degree is this AI algorithm excluding your, your vision of the rest of world religions? Right, right. Uh, it could be just deepening your own view, right? Which is what so much of what we see with social media is it tends to, you know, use those groups to put people in like-minded um, categories, right? And so you create these echo chambers where uh, what tends to happen is views become more galvanized, uh, more extreme uh, in, in direction. And so um, certainly that could happen in this space as well. Like, it, like if we just let the algorithms run the way that they do today uh, for commercial reasons and for 
uh, sort of what they're optimized for, which is really to hold your attention, to get your attention and to hold your attention. That's the currency. That's where the value is. And so, um, yes, certainly they could, they could have a tendency to sort of keep you uh, and put you into a, a, a bit of an echo chamber. In my research, uh, each person was exposed to um, answers that, that represented their, um, their identified worldview. And then some questions that came from other traditions uh, as well. And uh, so I looked at both when the, when the machines were, were answering consistent with their worldview and when they were answering inconsistent with that or just slightly different. So I say that because it's, what's, what's interesting is that many of these answers um, where you might say, oh, well, this was a, this was a, a self-identified Catholic person um, in the research. Um, and they got a, a Buddhist answer uh, from to a question. It wasn't always the case that people immediately identified that as something that wasn't consistent with their religious belief. And um, so that that was quite curious to me as well. And if you do, if you look at if you look at sort of the um, you know Pew Research does a lot of work in surveying. Uh, people about their their knowledge of religion, their their understanding of, of of world religions, and it's really at least in America it's quite poor. Like 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 we, I think they they found that um, sixty two percent of people like failed this the, uh, basic you know basic test of um, you know sort of like you know what what uh, what what day of the week is the Jewish Sabbath like what what. Uh, you know, uh, does does yoga have its roots in any you know particular tradition? Like we're we're really maybe you know maybe geography is the only thing that we're slightly better at you know that, that than than this. And so um, what I found is um, it it there was this this ability for the system to teach as well or to expose someone to new views. And um, you know the question then ethically is is that the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Um, and, and when I say right or wrong, I mean, you know, if I know that you're a Christian, for example, um, should I feel compelled to share with you other views um, as well? Or should I keep you on that, that particular path? And um, as I said, if you were optimizing for attention, um, which is what most systems do today, you try to keep people on, on the path typically. Oh, that's interesting. And I, and I see on Facebook pretty often, I mentioned I'm a Catholic, but I see advertisements in my Facebook feed for different churches. And I wonder if that's because some search algorithm knows, <laughs> knows. I'm religious, it knows about <laughs> me. Um, but I just think that's interesting. Like and there's a, and then there's a monetary component there, right? So like someone is paying for me to see this advertisement because they know that I have a predilection towards being religious. I, I just, yeah, I think that's a, Interesting topic. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is really interesting. I mean, the work, part of why I included uh, internet search. And so in, in that particular case, in the research, uh, participants would use their own computer um, to, you know, to search on, on some of these, these questions, some of these existential questions and topics. And I was curious to see what would be brought back. For example, if you are um, a Jewish person were the ads that were being shown alongside of the search results different than if someone were a Buddhist. Um, and what I, what I found was that um, 
this area of sort of you know paying for search terms and placing advertising this isn't something that is particularly prevalent like there aren't um there were there were definitely some churches um uh, some sort of mega churches and those kinds of things that were that did pop up for people occasionally um but i was surprised by the lack of advertising that did appear um when when people were searching on these topics and i think that's just a reflection of what kinds of uh, search terms and, and questions are, you know, as, as you said, being being paid for um, by organizations? Now, will that will that come? You know, will that happen over time? Uh, you know, I think I think I think probably it will um, as, as people start to think about um, the the reach and the and the power that, that that is available, you know, through these types of mechanisms. So, what are the next steps for this project? Um, well, the next steps are, uh, you know, writing the dissertation <laughs> and writing, <laughs> writing up some of the findings. Um, I mean, that's, that's really like tactically, you know, what it's about um, for, for me is, is to sort of codify uh, the results and, and, to, and to present them. Um, I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, in, in some ways, there's a lot more questions raised than answers. And um, you know, that, was, that was the reaction, you know, predominantly that, that came from uh, the New York Times article was there's a lot of great questions that are being raised here you know now what and um, so I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to you know continue the work in that direction um, and you know, you know two things I think you know I would love to um, I'd love to do a, like a, a longitudinal study here uh, where uh, over time people could interact with um, different um, AI entities on these topics, you know, over the course of months or even years, and then to and then to really you know dig in to see um, how how people are feeling. Uh, that would be that would be great, I think, to do that. And you know, uh, like OpenAI has this uh, GPT three engine um, that you know I think is you know really interesting. And and so I I think to have you know maybe some deeper conversations over a period of time that would be a great next step. Uh, here uh, and I think also in terms of um, AI ethics, you know, how do how do we think about this? Um, you know, my opinion has been sort of I'm, I'm shaped, being shaped as, as part of this process. But I think that looking at the reaction that people have after they they experience these types of interactions is is essential. And so, you know. Maybe, and I'm I'm sort of out of my depth here as we get into the medical area, but like almost like a clinical trial. Like you want, it would be great to see people use a technology for a while and to sort of track how they're feeling as as they use it. Um, and you know, hey, is is interacting with this technology and this type of information is this making you happier? Is it making you sadder? You know, how are you feeling after this this interaction? And so. Um, that I think is one component in terms of AI ethics that I think is really being missed in, in the industry is sort of what is the long-term impact of, 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 of using these technologies and, and how, how does it affect people uh, over time? I think so much of the AI ethics have uh, been focused on sort of what are our top level principles um, that we're gonna be following, you know, whether it's transparency or privacy or, you know, all, and those are all good things uh, to have, um, but those are all sort of, sort of, you know, platitudinal in a way. And I think um, having sort of a, a view of 
how are people feeling after they use your technology is, a, is an important input as well. So those are some ideas about um, where I, I would like to take the research next. I like that idea. You know, it's very empirical, very outcomes based. Um, I was wondering, you know, regarding your research, would you say you have like an overarching thesis? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the thesis is um, we, so, so the first question is, does this, do these kinds of interactions with, uh, well, you know, religious information, you could say religious information is also a proxy for highly personal, highly meaningful information. Um, and, you know, so the question of do interactions with artificial intelligence based entities does it have an impact on this type of information for people? And the first answer is yes. Um, so what what do you what do you do with this? Well, um, you know, I think at a first level there needs to be some awareness as people use this technology. So um, you know, there's been a lot written about this, whether it's for younger kids and, and parenting, and sort of how you know screen time affects kids and how you should make them aware of you know how how they're feeling and, and the like. Um, I think that there's, you know, um, you guys would be familiar with uh, the Miller liner uh, optical illusion. It's the one where there's like multiple lines and some of the lines have arrows on the end and some of the lines have sort of tails, you know, poking out at the end. And it, and, you know, it looks like one of the lines is longer than the other. Um, it, and, and this is, um, an illusion for us, right? And so if, we're, if we know that this exists, that this phenomenon, when we look at the line that has tails on it or arrows, that we need to be uh, a little bit maybe suspicious of what's going on. Like we, we know the trick, right? We know that something's happening uh, when we see that. The same should be true, I believe, with artificial intelligence and in that when we're interacting with these devices, we need to know uh, what kind of state of mind that we're in, what kind of, uh, how open we are to suggestion, what our behaviors are like when we interact um, with these devices, because we have, uh, hum we use cues from human to human interaction to interpret our human to machine interaction. And so typically like human to human, if someone says, oh, well, this, this person is um, super well-educated on this topic, is you know, preeminent in her field, and you're talking to her about it, you know, you immediately sort of defer to her expertise in the conversation. Well, the same is true with, um, with AI and the internet, only at a higher level. That's sort of what my, my research is showing. And so people need to be aware that their tendencies are going to be to anthropomorphize uh, the experience, especially if it's a, a voice experience or an augmented reality experience or a virtual reality experience. Um, they're, they're also going to tend to defer to the information uh, that they're hearing uh, because they're, in most cases, they'll be assuming that, you know, the internet has more information than I do about this topic. And so I think uh, what's really important here is this sort of raised level of consciousness when we're in these interactions, uh, a, little, a little bit of skepticism in terms of the information that we're uh, receiving. Uh, and just to be, a, to be able to identify when we're in that zone. Mm. Yeah, regarding the first part, you're saying how, you know, it definitely affects the way we view our own spirituality. I was wondering, could you talk more about the findings that you've seen and like, how has it shifted people's beliefs? 
or how they think about their own spirituality? Yeah, uh, I think that um, one of the key observations was how even these short answers, you know, from, from the, the AI um, triggered memories for people. And when, the, it, you know, very often it was deceased relatives, um, it could be grandmother, grandfather, uncle, aunt, um, father, mother, um, who, you know, typically the situation was there was a very spiritual person in someone's life um, who would maybe always say a particular, um, you know, verse from the Quran or, or, or what have you. And, and, and that would just trigger sort of a, a rush of emotion, a rush of, uh, of, of, of memories. And it, it left people in a state of um, really, I think, being open to suggestion uh, or open to, you know, information at that point. Uh, and that was a little bit startling for me because I wasn't, I wasn't at all expecting um, people to, um, to, to, re to respond in that way. And, and so was the technology was triggering a series of events um, that um, left people open for, um, you know, what does this really mean? What, I really haven't answered this question very well. Um, you know, I think, you know, in some ways I was doing this, um, this research in the height of the pandemic. And so, so perhaps some of that, um, some of those questions were um, being explored by people anyway, a little bit, but, but uh, I think uh, for me, it was uh, really impressive the way that people started to take stock of, okay, what do I think about death? What do I think about afterlife? What if I, what if I had answered this question for my kids? What if I had answered for me right now? Um, and uh, it was really, it was really striking how um, just a very short interaction with the technology really sort of made people revisit that and to think about it more. And most people left with sort of a, I would call it like a spiritual to-do list from, from the research sessions where they're like, you know, I need to sit down with my family and talk about this, or I need to, I need to talk to my 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 dad about what he what he means when he says this this thing you know and and um, so for me it, you know I wasn't able to observe as I said longitudinally sort of like where did people end up um, but what I was able to observe was people really taking a pause reflecting thinking about really deeply personal things that they hadn't felt in a, in a while and then you know, wanting to take action against that. And so um, that indicated for me that they were, they were going to do some work. They were going to do some work um, on themselves uh, in this area. It's funny you say that because that's kind of reminds me of, you know, when you talk to a rabbi or an imam or a chaplain or, you know, or just any spiritual leader, I feel like that's normally the response that they want you to have is to like begin that questioning and kind of continue on your own spiritual journey. So it's kind of interesting seeing that this AI has taken the role of that. I did want to ask just like a little bit of a technical question of, you know, the actual research. I'm curious, um, how were the responses prepared by the AI? Like, did you, did you sift through them at all? Or did you filter any of them? Or was it just, you know, like whatever they put in, like they got unfiltered from the algorithm and, you know, like, did you use like the Alexa algorithm or did you have your own or, you know, could you talk to some of that? Sure, sure. Uh, so to answer your question most directly, so all of the answers, other than the internet searching, which obviously I, I 
couldn't, there was no control for that, you know, um, but the, uh, the answers were ones that, um, that I had put together um, doing research ahead of the actual sessions um, to uh, pull together. And I used, I used sources that were, that claimed to be authoritative for each given worldview. And then I reviewed those with leaders from each of those traditions that I, that I know. Um, and, but I, but I had probably for each of the questions there were probably like 10 different responses for each uh, worldview. Uh, and, you know, they were, you know, between like, um, they, they basically could be spoken in one breath. Like that's kind of the, the, the that's the, the sort of target for, for most of these uh, types of, you know, especially the voice devices or even like a text, you know, response, you want them to be relatively short. Um, so, uh, so I, I put together that knowledge base of answers, uh, and, um, and then, the algorithm within that would, would, would pick from those uh, with, within that knowledge base. So I wouldn't know which answer specifically was going to come out um, for each of the questions or any, in each of the sessions. Um, but I, I made sure that the, the answers were going to be, they were going to make sense. They were going to, you know, they were going to address the question uh, and that they were uh, representative uh, of, of a particular tradition. So um, it was it was more a simulation than um, you know than a like a production system uh, of AI that sort of anybody could log into and and, and start and start asking these questions. Uh, but um, you know, for the purposes of trying to keep it um, meaning a meaningful interaction, because even the the internet searching, you know, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't particularly useful. Like so, a lot of times, you know, I had people sort of rate the answers that they got and, and those tended to be some of the lower uh, rated, uh, the lower rated answers. This project I just think is so interesting and I, I love that you mentioned that people went home and had these conversations because we don't really think of spirituality as part of our health, but I would, I would say spirituality, religion, is a really big part of overall well-being um, and something that's kind of a taboo topic a little bit in medicine, but something patients talk about a lot. Did you see any other effects on spiritual health from this interaction uh, between the AI and the, the individuals in your study, or do you anticipate any effects, health and well-being effects in the future? I hope it helps people. I think, you know, I think anytime you... Um, you know, I had a list of like 10 questions that we, that we really focused on. And, and these, these I researched as well, sort of from scholars and philosophers and, and, and the quest, those questions like don't really change that much about sort of the human experience. Uh, and um, I think it is pretty useful to go, to run through those, you know, and, and to, to, to sort of say, hey, do, you know, what, what do I think about this? You know, what, what do I think about, um, you know, what it means to be a good person. What, what do I mean when I talk about being happy and, and, and what makes me happy? Uh, these are important things that we a lot of times just sort of set on autopilot uh, and, and, and don't look at. And so I think, I think checking in on, on that is, is useful and I hope it's useful for people long-term. I think, as you mentioned, the conversations that those, that, that those questions could kick off for a person you know, with their friends and with their family, um, that can be extremely useful um, in, in terms of, of just kind of knowing, 
knowing where you're at, because, you know, part of at least the theory that, that I'm developing is that, you know, these, these interactions like with family and friends on these topics can be as influential as, you know, the, the things you get, you know, in, uh, you know, from a religious organization, you know, that, that has, you know, more, more strict rules, you know, insights that people give you can just be really, really helpful for you longer term. Uh, you know, from a, a medical perspective, and again, I'm, I'm going to get out of my depth here pretty quick, but some of the, some of the, the research that I did, uh, the, the literature review um, did focus on uh, palliative care and, um, and the idea that um, we have a, a memory that's sort of embodied in our, in that is, you know, partially mind and cognition and, and in our consciousness and partly that's in our body and the phenomenon that 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 occurs you know quite frequently in the work of a scholar named um, John Swinton is that uh, he would say like you know even like really later stage dementia uh, patients would you know with these with, with religious information they would sort of come to life they would sort of um, that would be the thing that would, you know, come out if, if, if he were to pray with them, if there were rituals um, that, um, that they were very familiar with, um, that those things would sort of light people up in a way. And so I think there's quite a lot of potential uh, for, you know, devices uh, and algorithms to help in this, in this way as well. If you think about interaction and stimulation and, and, and really, um, getting to things that, 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 that help people, you know, feel, I guess, more alive in that, in that part uh, of the journey. I've heard the same thing said about music. And I think, I think both music and religion evoke a certain emotion in people that, that is brought out, you know, when it's, when it's available. Um, yeah. And I think there's, there's something about this, about memory and the way that memory works in the way that memory works with things like music, things like uh, spiritual memories, things like ritual, uh, things like uh, sacred text and, and verses. Um, there's, there's, there's something going on there and, and more work needs to be done in that area to understand it. Maybe our next guest will be a, a neurologist to figure out what's going on in our brains regarding that stuff. But um, I guess we're kind of touching, we're brushing around the topic of AI and medicine. What do you think the future of AI and medicine is going to look like in 10 to 20 years? It can be in relation to your project or just in general. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope like I said, it, it can help people um, in, in sort of engagement and thinking about these topics and, and even, you know, later in life with, with, uh, with dementia, I hope that it can be useful in this way. I, I have a, a lot of optimism about it um, in, that, in that way. You know, more broadly in medicine, I mean, you, you probably will know more than I, um, but I think, uh, you know, these systems, these machine learning systems, um, these algorithms, they're, they're excellent at you know, processing large amounts of data and showing um, trends, showing, as I said, you know, categories or groups, uh, being able to detect things that um, are similar. And so whether it's, you know, in radiology and and identifying uh, and reading um, their their uh, their scans, um, or whether it's um, in diagnostic uh, types of situations, I think you know they will progress over time uh, for sure, and give uh, you know at least a 
a sense of like, hey, I think this particular situation looks a lot like all of these other situations. Um, and, you know, you know, some people will be very bullish and say, well, the systems will actually um, be able to then make a, a diagnosis and, and be correct more often than a human. Um, I think we're pretty far away from that right now. And so, um, I, you know, there's a, it's really more about um, intelligence augmentation, I think, at this point uh, from these systems. And as I think about the medical, uh, the medical field, um, and I think what that means is that students, medical students, you know, they don't need to be computer scientists, but they, they should understand how these systems function and what they're good at. Um, and just like I was talking about the, the sort of optical illusion, like knowing, knowing where, they're, where these systems are, are good, where they carry bias, where they, um, uh, they might, they're, they're not very good at sort of horizontal thinking. They're not very good at like, you know, intuition and connecting uh, disparate things. They're, they're very good at sort of, uh, you know, the spotlight types of uh, functions where it's sort of more linear and like here, here's all the information that I have, here are the things that are similar. It's a little bit less good at sort of, you know, the sideways thinking. And so that's to me, the, the human element and to do, to do well, to bring these, the, the human and the machines together, I think you know, what's required is, is a basic understanding of how these systems work, what they're good at, where they carry bias, uh, and, then, and then being able to look at that and take it in as one input um, to the information that you have in your, in your decision. So you mentioned bias, and actually in one of our previous episodes, we talked about encoding bias into a system and how to prevent the encoding of bias into a system. Do you think um, there's a potential for religious bias to be in systems that are being used currently, and how do we prevent that? I, yes, of course. I think there's, there's definitely, um, not, only, not only is it um, you know, possible, I think it's likely um, that this is going on. And I think you know, this is part of, again, where, you know, understanding how the systems work, you know, these systems work by consuming, you know, massive amounts of data and, and processing it. And so the first place to look when you think about bias is, is that data. Uh, and, um, you know, you know what's, what, are, what are these systems ingesting? Where are they getting it from? Uh, you know, so, you know, it's pretty widely known that a lot of uh, a lot of sort of question and answer systems um, rely on Wikipedia uh, for a lot of the the corpus of, of information that they use. And so then you say, okay, well, who's contributing to Wikipedia? Um, and um, you know, it's pretty clear that you know white males are are contributing much more to Wikipedia than pretty much any other group. Uh, and so I think then, you know, that context, that, that sort of, you know, even historical context is, is, is something that's going to be represented in the things that they write. And sure enough, you know, sure it's, you know, it is crowdsourced and there are people who check and, and what have you, but you have to just ask yourself, you know, where is that data coming from? I mean, so that's sort of more of a, you know, a micro example, but then even if you zoom out a little bit more, like what is the data that's being consumed? Where does it come from in general? There's this, there tends to be a very strong Western bias uh, in the data um, that is, you know, already populated on the internet and, and in different various systems. And many of the 
many of the uh, technologies that have been developed are you know first developed you know in an english speaking um, type of scenario and so they're optimized for uh, reading uh, material that's in english and of course they're adapted over time but um, those things all you know contribute to bias and so that's the first thing that i think about is okay where is this information coming from uh, and and who is it is it coming from initially I have kind of a, a hot take question, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think technology will bring us further or closer to our spirituality? I'm optimistic on it. Uh, I, I I think we have to be we have to be careful, but I do think I, I'm optimistic that it can actually help people understand different viewpoints. And one of the things that came out of the research as well is this idea that our ignorance and and you know is, is 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 generally based on fear it's generally based on our reluctance to um, ask people tough questions or um, you know that are or perhaps socially awkward and what I found is that people um, you know have less of that issue when they're talking to a machine right they they have they're they're willing to ask a stupid a stupid question a stupid question or a, a or a socially awkward question of a machine to get an answer and so I'm hopeful that um, that that'll help and that's sort of that's sort of where you know that's at the core of of some of the idea of this research is you know what what happens or what should happen when you ask Alexa you know is there a God and what what should she say how should that answer be constructed and um, and and I think. Um, I just think there's 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 great opportunity for exposing people to um, more information and doing it in a way that sort of uh, you know quells ignorance, quells some of the fear, and I and I think that'll bring bring people together. Yeah, I do think there is something therapeutic in even just asking a question uh, in a non-judgmental space. Um, yeah, I like that you mentioned OpenAI. I actually I've played around with it and like talked to it. You know, and I've asked some silly questions and, and I'm shocked that it responds, you know, cool, because it has to. But, you know, and like the responses I get are sometimes coherent, sometimes not. But I find that, um, you know, it's it's pretty shocking to me. Uh, I, I do think like there is an amount of self-discovery that can come with it. And, uh, and I think of even AI in like other settings where it's been applied, you know, they talk about um, whether like with chess players, Go players or with uh, in esports, you know, they'll play against the AI algorithm. And then, right. you know, the response is actually, from what I've read, uh, overwhelmingly positive. A lot of them say that it helps them understand the game in a way that they'd never thought about before. And like when asked if they played again, they said they'd want to practice with it. You know, they, they want to keep engaging with it. And, and I wonder if, you know, maybe in the distant future, you know, in the, in the future, this could be something that, I don't know, uh, you know, and in, in, instead of a, maybe some sort of counselor. I don't you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely opportunity there. You know, the, one of the core things that would, I think needs to change is, is the business model that is so often applied to technology and technology experiences, you know, this advertising or this attention economy business model, um, you know, that, um, that has shown to, to lead to, you know, some undesirable outcomes, you know, where, where you end up with these tech, these technical echo chambers and, and you kind of go down that path. I do think if there were a different model, 
where it wasn't just about like how do you how do you sort of suck people in and keep them on the longest, but it's it was you know something that we would maybe be willing to pay for you know uh, as a subscription or something where we you know we didn't have um, all of all of that that pressure in the system to sort of monetize the time that you're spending you know with it, um, and that that's you know that's you know I'm that's that has changed dramatically in the time that I've been in technology. You know, initially technology was you you know you bought a, a product um, and then you used it and it was you know the value was in um, you know the value exchange was when you when you first bought the product. And then, you know, and then the company, whoever created it, wanted you to have the best experience possible with that, with that product, get the most value out of using it over the long term. And I feel like it's shifted now to, you know, it, it's sort of almost uh, cliche now, but like, you know, people are the products in terms of the users are the products in terms of their attention. And, and I think that leads to a motivation um, that isn't always best aligned with delivering the most amount of value and the best experience uh, for, for the customer. And so um, I, I think that that would have to change. It means we're going to have to change the way that we, the way that we use technology, the way that we consume technology, the way that we have an expectation for things being free or, or, or what have you. And so um, that's the thing that I think, you know, um, we'll, we'll see kind of how we're, we're uh, open AI goes uh, with their, with their work. Um, you know, but the early signs are that, you know, they, they understand this very well. And, and, um, and so I'm optimistic. What are your thoughts on apps like Headspace or Calm where, you know, you pay, it's like a subscription model where you kind of, you know, pay for, I guess, a wellness experience. But um, I feel like with their, I don't know, they're trying to provide a, a service that isn't, you know, it's not trying to get your attention. It's just trying to provide you, I don't know, a space to think. Um, do you think that's kind of closer in the direction you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I think those are those are good examples. Um, you know, I think those companies um, are always, you know, they're always going to want to see growth in their revenues. Or, and so I think there's always a, probably a tension for them. Um, you know, in, in fact, it's it, the, the tension becomes greater the more successful you are, the more people you have, you know, you, you the larger you know, the larger market share you have, the harder it is to, you know, just generate more revenue based on getting more people. And so then you start thinking about like, okay, how do we, how do we monetize the individual users that we have? And, and that's, that's the part where it gets a little bit more tricky, but yeah, those, those are examples where, you know, paying for a subscription, it's a very, you know, specific um, experience that you're, that you're desiring and that, that, that you're getting out of it. Uh, I think those, they're on to something there. I, I, uh, I want to still ask about the research, your research experiment, because I, for some reason, it's like really, a, the image is very poignant in my mind. What I'm, so I guess like, if I were a participant, could you like walk me through what would happen? You know, because I'm right now, what I imagine is, you know, I'm sitting in a dark room and I'm asking Alexa these questions about life and God and, you know, what is good, what is evil. And like, she's returning answers to me that I guess you've, pre-prepared you've prepared but then the algorithm kind of selects which ones to give like is that correct or you know can you kind of walk me through what happened in the actual experiment yeah that, that's pretty close to it i mean I, I had to adapt i mean initially i wanted to do this in person uh and and have an experience um you know in uh you know with with a with a group of people and have them kind of go from different stations and so there would be a station that would be 
an Alexa, there'd be a station that would be a Google home device. There'd be a station where I'd say, hey, pull out your mobile phone and, and text a particular number and uh, ask these questions. And then like a, you know, an internet kiosk where they could interact with, with search and then people would kind of rotate around, you know, um, and, and, and get those, each of those experiences. I adapted it to being online. And so, you know, I did most of it like, like you know, how we are talking here and um, where I had devices, you know, set up uh, in proximity to, to, to my end and, 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 and participants would ask questions of the devices um, or text to different numbers. Um, and as I said, like this, we basically focused on this set of 10 questions and there would be, you know, different permutations. People would ask questions slightly differently here and there, um, but the topic might be sort of death and afterlife. And they would, they would ask a question. They would receive an answer from the technology. And then I would, I would ask them to sort of, we had a, like an emoji scale that they would rate um, their, the response on uh, in terms of, you know, I just said, however, it makes you feel, you know, happy face to like really brownie face um, or upset or whatever, angry. We had a bunch of, of different responses. Uh, and then, um, and then, you know, we would talk about it like what, okay, um, what did you think about this? How do you answer this question for yourself? Um, you know, what, you know, how, how did this make you feel? And then we would, then again, at the end, we took about an hour to sort of recap the entire experience uh, of, of this. And so, as I said, you know, across the 10 questions, you know, probably seven to eight of them would be sort of consistent with their, with their religious background. And then two or three might be um, different. And, and, um, and then we would talk about sort of what, how did that feel as well? And so um, highly qualitative in nature uh, and, uh, and, you know, definitely a, a, like I said, a simulation of where AI might be. Cause if, today, if you, if you were to go and ask Alexa, you know, what happens when you die? She might say something like, well, you need to plug me back in or I need, you know, or I don't know, or, you know, Hmm, I never thought about that, you know? And, and so clearly what's going on there is um, some programmer somewhere said, okay, for this category of questions, we're just going to like, we're just going to punt. We're just going to like, we're going to make something up. We're going to tell a joke. We're going to, we're just going to get uh, off of that. <laughs> we're not going to engage. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this was, um, you know, uh, it, it was interesting to see how people felt about these devices, you know, something very, that they're very familiar with. Um, you know, giving an authoritative answer on, uh, you know, you know, if it was a non-religious answer, it might say like, you know, I, you know, this is our, this is the one life we have, like when it's over, it's over, uh, enjoy it, you know? And, and so to hear, to see how people felt about that, it was pretty, pretty amazing because we, we do tend to defer to these, to these voices. We do tend to defer uh, to information that's coming from them. And, and in some ways we don't, we can't look away. Like that's the other thing about, um, you know, they're not disregarded very often. Um, so uh, yeah, it was, um, that, that's a little bit of the flavor of it. I mean, sometimes, you know, in any of these experiments you have to be um, aware of sort of how long you can take somebody through it. You know, you always yeah. want to have three, four, six, eight, ten 10 hours, you know, with somebody. Yeah. 
Um, but, but how do you make an experience um, so that, um, you know, they get something out of it and you get something out of it as the researcher. And I think, I think it struck the right balance. And I think in some ways doing it remotely and, and, and over, um, you know, over video was, was pretty useful. Um, people, people wanted to talk about something other than COVID and the election. And, um, you know, people wanted to, you know, engage on some of these topics uh, and have a break from, from some of the other things going on in their lives. And so I was very fortunate um, in that time. And uh, I think it was, it was, a, it was you know, sort of, sort of the right size. And you can tell, you know, I, I was, I mean, Linda did an amazing job on that article, um, but she, you know, she actually participated in the research. And so, uh, you know, you get a sense of kind of how, how people felt, you know, from, from reading that article. I promise this is the last question I have regarding the project, but I'm curious, uh, yeah. did people or like, did you ever just read out the responses yourself or did a human read it out? Cause I'm curious, like, I wonder like disembodied Alexa voice versus just a, a normal human telling them the response. Like if their, if their response to that would change. Um, I did not, I did not, it was all, it was all delivered. Um, you know, through the, through the technology. So I didn't, it wasn't, um, I didn't recite it uh, for people. Uh, it's a good, it's a good observation. It's a good question because um, there's a, um, one, of, one of the bodies of work that I, that I reviewed um, had, it's called the, um, the four voices of theological reflection. And it talks about the influence of um, normative voices, formal voices, uh, espoused voices, and operant voices, and and it you know to your point, like having a religious official, like a, a, a an imam, a, a, a priest, a rabbi, uh, a monk, you know, have having somebody read this text or uh, recite an answer carries with it um, inherent, you know, power, it, 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 authority, and, and people respect it. And so um, I think that would be an interesting, an interesting approach um, and to look at it. And, that, and there is actually quite a lot of, of research done in that space. And, you know, when, when you're working on a PhD, the big, the big thing is to be unique and novel uh, in the work. And so uh, for me, it was, okay, does any of that uh, authority does it does it translate to uh, a disembodied voice um, in it through technology and uh, it does well, and, it, and actually the, the thing one of the things that we talked about bias earlier as well you know as you it's been well documented well written about um, just the the bias even in the female voices that are the default for really pretty much any digital assistant. And um, oh, I thought of that. Oh, wow, wow, <laughs> you're right. They're all female. Yeah, um, and you can change them, um, but nobody does really, or very few wow. people do. And um, so some of, some of, one of the things in the research was that I did change to a uh, uh, male voice uh, occasionally, you know, some t maybe like a, a very sort of uh, proper British voice, you know, yes. sort of uh, the disembodied idea of the sort of the, the God in the sky, you know, um, sort of Charlton Heston, like, you know, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of, uh, um, and, and there was uh, a, a marked response, like when, 
people heard a male, authoritative male voice coming out of one of the devices saying, you know, something relatively authoritative about good and evil or um, life and death or, you know, happiness, like generally people did not like that. Like, like they, well, they, they didn't was, like it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was oh. a, um, it wow. was a shock, you know, I mean, we, we like to, you know, most of the research shows that we like to have these, um, these devices uh, appear subordinate, even though we, um, even though we give them lots of authority. And so it's a very interesting, yeah. And it, it, you know, it's on, it is unfortunate, you know, because even the idea of it being an assistant or a secretary, there's sort of this anthropomorphic, um, you know, whole, whole costume that we put on them, like to say, okay, well, there, then it should be a demure female voice. And she, should, you know, and, and, and it's, it, it is, it is, uh, you know, even in, even in that, just in that, that one aspect, um, you see, you see bias coming out. Um, but, um, yeah, getting back to your question, um, it was only information from the devices. And then I relied on the, the literature review of, of what has been done in, in, in religious settings um, for um, sort of the, the, the viewpoint or the, the discussion point about um, human, human to human communication. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because, you know, like we as uh, we're in medical school, but, you know, we have to like wear a white coat when we see our patients. And and I do think, you know, the setting of how you talk to someone and how you communicate, you know, what even when you talk to a priest, you know, a priest is like kind of all dressed up. I think that really affects how you take the information, you know, because if I were just wearing a T-shirt, seeing a patient, like, oh, you know, you have a, a hernia that we need to fix. Like, no one would believe me. <laughs> they would not take you seriously. But, like, sometimes I even put on the coat myself to, you know, deliver more difficult things because I just feel like there's more a willingness a readiness to accept and you know part of it's cultural um but i do find it fascinating that people were more receptive towards a, a subordinate or you, you know towards a female voice because i don't know i guess typically in spiritual traditions it's always like some you know very like regally dressed male figure yeah it you know to be a man most religious traditions i find that interesting yeah 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 definitely no it has a huge has a huge impact um but yeah maybe Maybe you you two should start you know the the sort of uh, you know t-shirts and flip flops you know <laughs> and uh, clinic and see how it goes you know we'll, we'll have to wait until we're full blown doctors I don't think we can take it seriously as students <laughs> I was also wondering why why do you think humans are so willing or ready to anthropomorphize these disembodied voices and like listen to them mm -hmm. um, well. First, I think, you know, this is how we process information. Like we're, we're, we're designed, we use our human to human experience um, to make sense of information when it comes to us through technology. And especially if the technology is presenting in some type of a human form. And so, you know, the disembodied voice um, is particularly interesting because, you know, it, it requires you to hang so many things onto it, like, like it to, to sort of make meaning of what's coming out of it. Right. And so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what would happen in the research is, you know, even though I, I would explain as I did, you know, with you here, like, you know, I'm, this is how this experiment works. This is where the information came from. I can't tell you how many times people would say, 
oh, well, this was a Google device and Google is very logical and, you know, Larry Page, you know, would think this way, or this is an Alexa device. And so Jeff Bezos must think this way. And I would I'd say, no, no, this is not coming from them. Um, but I think it's because we try to make meaning, um, you know, and we use the tools that we have, which are all predominantly based on human to human communication. Um, and then, uh, you know, I do think, you know, this is, you know, going, going back pretty far, like, you know, like Sherry Turkle, um, we did a lot of work on sort of the, the metaphysical aspects of, you know, personal computers and, 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 and technology in general. And we, uh, again, we kind of think about, um, like the developer of the technology. We kind of think about that as a, as a concept or like a person that's telling us something. Uh, we, we try, we, we give the machine a lot of uh, credibility just based on the idea that like, Hey, they don't really tend to make mistakes that often and they have all this information. And so again, it's like this idea of, of, you know, this is sort of this odd balance of like subordination and, and, and sort of deferral, um, to like a, a, like something that might have more information for us. And so, um, you know, this relationship is it, it's also interesting that the people tend to give machines a kind of more latitude on making mistakes and like they try to like work with it um, versus like human to human where <laughs> there's a conflict they'll immediately go to like sure, that's uh, the opposite. <laughs> let's, let's 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 fight about this and let's have an argument you know like but the machine's kind of like well i don't really feel that you know so it, it it's um you know that's that's at the core of it as i think that we um we want to, we, we have this sort of special place, um, you know, with technology and a lot of it's based on understanding human to human communication, but then, but then wanting it to be a tool that helps us and, and, um, and wanting to work with it. Certainly a lot of things to think yeah, that's about. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, you have such an interesting background in this topic. I love the world religions, the working for Microsoft, all of that. For us, we would love to hear some advice that you have, maybe maybe just in general for like someone in their 20s, advice about, it can be about AI, it can be about religion or just life in general. Or to your, what would you give yourself? Advice, oh, advice, advice to yourself. To yourself. Yeah. I like that, yes. When you were in your 20s, what would you tell yourself now? Um, well, well from you know, now it's, gonna, now. it's a little bit, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the myself in my 20s and then you know, I've got now a 17 year old. And so we're having lots of conversations about kind of his path forward and, and, and what I've seen there. So in my twenties, I mean, when, when, um, I, you know, I would, the advice I'd give myself would be to relax. You know, take your vacation, travel more, read more, invest in, uh, friendships and, um, you know, and not be, you know, not have your career be the very center, like, and to say like, Hey, your career is a long game. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it'll, you know, do well, you know, be smart, work hard, all of those things, but don't, um, don't make it the only thing or make it you know, one dimensional. And, you know, at that time, like in the workforce, it, it was very common for people to compete on how long you were at the office. And, 
um, you know, and not taking well, right. <laughs> Oh yeah. And it was very much uh, um, be seen and, and, and be there uh, late into the night and, and um, you know, and not sort of not, you know, you're working on holidays, all that stuff was sort of like, those were all kudos if you, you know, and, and, it, and that was, that just bred this um, uh, culture that was, that was tough. And I think the reason I, so I, I think things have changed a lot. I think, I think um, at least in my experience in hiring and working with uh, younger people, I think that there's a uh, much more of a balance uh, here in this space now. And, and, and I think that's great. And, 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 and people are demanding uh, that kind of balance. Um, and so, yeah, my advice, you know, for me in my twenties would, would be in that direction, you know, today, um, today, I think it, it, it's a bit different. You know, I think um, today, what I, what I observe is that there's, there's uh, for a lot of, for a lot of uh, younger people, they've always had a very, um, they've always had a lot of like uh, structure around, you know, you do well in school, you, you, you know, you do well on your tests, you, then you, you, you know, you apply to college and you get into a good college and then you, you know, and then you apply to grad school and you continue on and, and, you know, these, these things are kind of all laid out for you and you need, you know, you need to, you know, play two sports and you need to do your volunteering work and, you know, and it's just sort of this, um, a pretty prescribed set of things to, to quote, be successful, right. Or, uh, to set yourself up well. And, um, I don't know, like, I, I think stepping back and, and asking some of the questions like that were in my research, like what, you know, uh, what makes you happy? Like what, what, what's meaningful to you? Um, what, uh, how can you make a difference in that space? You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be top of your class in mathematics or, you know, in, uh, in sort of STEM related fields. Like what if you're, what if you really are great at, you know, writing or in history, you know, like there's something, you know, to that. And, you know, a friend of mine here at University of Washington, he teaches a class called uh, Life Worth Living. Uh, it's Jim Wellman. And, uh, you know, part of that class is he has, you know, young students, you know, write their life plan, which is sort of, hey, these are the things that are meaningful to me. This is re what really matters. And the thing that he comes away with almost immediately is like a lot of the students say, this is the first time anyone's asked me to do something. Well, I feel like I need to do that. I think we should do that. It's a good activity. You know, and, and it's gonna be, it could be something that, you know, you look at in a year or two or 10 or what have you, um, but at least you have like a, a checkpoint that is like, hey, like this is what I thought when I was 20 years old, you know, that, that I thought made me happy and, and how I could contribute. And, um, you know, but I think, you know, doing that check-in and pausing for a minute, um, because I feel like there's so much being thrown at young people today um, in terms of demands uh, from school, you know, social media expectations, like everything is sort of like just incoming, 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 and you can just spend your life um, essentially reacting to that, right? Um, to try to, you know, take some time and, and write that plan, you know, like write a, write a short essay, which is sort of what would be my life worth living. I got a question, uh, especially, you know, regarding young people, young folk. Um, mm -hmm. So in your, in the article that you're featured in the New York Times, one of the top comments uh, pretty much was along the lines of Gen Z is well attuned to the to the, uh, I guess, the needs of spirit or the question of spirituality without uh, without needing religion. Because I guess like in the end, the author kind of 
her main point was like, you know, we need religion to help bring us close or religion and AI to help bring us closer to our spirituality, find meaning. But I guess the top comment, you know, is this, like a young person is saying we can do this, you know, Gen Z can do this without religion. And then my question to you is, you know, what's your response? Like, do we still need religion moving forward? Well, I think it, it goes back to sort of that definition of what, you know, if, if you think of religion as um, a group and an organization and you think of spirituality as um, something like an individual fabric that, that each of us weaves, right? So um, it's, a, it's an interesting question, you know, like if you, I guess the, the, the question is, are you going to do it on your own? Yeah. Are you going to figure out these, like, for me, it's like this list of 10 questions, but like, there's a larger scope of sort of the phenomenon of spirituality. Like, do you, um, are you going to spend some time thinking about that? Um, are you going to work it out? And then, you know, if you have children, like, what are you going to tell them about this? Like, like, how are you, how are you going to do it? I think, um, a religion very often has, uh, a body of work and I'll call it, you know, a set of technologies that they've developed sometimes over thousands of years that have generally proven to be useful for people in some form or fashion. And so I think um, it's possible that you could, you could, you could find your way, you know, it's a little bit like um, it's maybe like a little bit like homeschooling, like can, can people homeschool and, and, and do well? Yeah, there are, there are, there are examples of that. Um, you know, not everybody can do that, you know, and, and, um, and some people might say, Hey, I don't, I don't need to do that. Or I don't feel the need to do that. Or I think I've got it, you know? Um, but, um, you know, I think religion and religious organizations can be very helpful for people. Um, I would tend to encourage people to look beyond just one, you know, to get some, some different, just as you would do in, in, in many areas of thought and philosophy, you look, um, you look across, you look kind of left and right and see kind of, you know, what, what resonates with you and what's helpful for you. Um, but, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, find, find their way on their own, I mean, I would never, I would never discourage that, but I think it's important to, though, understand i think it's understand culture understand people understand um the world we live in um these things are you know these are some of the building blocks of of how societies work and function and and so i think um whether you take in the religion into your own spiritual fabric um it's worthwhile knowing about it so that you can understand people uh, more deeply you can understand um, uh, relationships. You can understand politics. I think all of these things are, are, are very useful. And so um, I think there's a difference between saying, hey, I don't want some group to tell me what to do and saying, hey, I think that these groups have value to offer. Yeah, and I feel like you know your work has shown that I guess technology, AI, it, it can help us question and it can help facilitate our own spiritual path. Um, and I, I guess like maybe one of my last questions, I was just, do you think, uh, I don't know, like technology, AI, would you, would you put it in like the same category as just another one of these major world religions that kind of helps us question, or would you put it as kind of like a big, like meta tool slash meta religion that is like almost like a, you know, this next level religion kind of that people 
are more willing to defer to nowadays and listen to? I, I, I don't know if that question kind of makes sense, but, you know. I think there are, I mean, there definitely are people who view technology as, or it could, could be part of, uh, you know, an important part of a, a spirituality or a religion. I, I think um, for me, I, I put it in the, the tool category. Um, and, um, you know, I think, again, like raising our level of consciousness, our level of perspective about when we're interacting with information um, that's coming from these systems, what, what inherent bias it might hold, um, and, just, and just having a, a better appreciation for that, I think, is, is really important for people. I, I think that's not to say that it's, it's all bad or it's, it's, it's not helpful, because I think it, there's tremendous possibility. But I think, you know, ultimately, this is, these are tools that, that humans have created, and um, they should be positive you know, for us and, and, and useful. And um, we need to just be aware of how to use them. That said, any final words of wisdom for our listeners? No, I think I think we covered it. I think we covered a lot of of of, of those things here. You know, I think um, as I said, you know, for for medical students, I, and and really students in any any discipline where they're going to be using um, these these uh, artificial intelligence systems. I think having a basic understanding of how they work, where they have strengths, where they have weaknesses, uh, how uh, humans, the intersection of human thought with the information that's coming from these systems, um, you know, could benefit the fields. But that's the area that I think, I think all, all uh, medical students and, and, uh, and sort of all STEM students should really have, you know, at the ready. I have one last question. Okay, last one. Um, yeah. What is your favorite spiritual text? Or yeah. Well, I think yeah, it's so it's so it's interesting. Um, I don't know that I I don't know that I have uh, I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, I think um, and, and it's and you know these texts are. These texts are interesting in that they're, you know, at least for for us, um, you know, predominantly English speakers. You know, they've they've all been translated, you know, multiple times, and by the time they get to us, and so, you know, it's um, I haven't, you know, I'm not a scholar of, of sacred texts in terms of like being able to read them in, um, you know, in their their sort of more native forms. Um, but I have a great respect. Um, for um, the intersection of what I would think of as you know being like uh, poetry and um, and text, and you know we see this in the Bhagavad Gita, um, you know to a certain extent um, uh, in the Quran. You know these these are like you know as Madeline was talking about earlier. In some ways, they're the intersection of almost like a music and, uh, a, and a spiritual text, you know, with meaning. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think the Bible does that uh, just to a certain extent as well. Um, but, I, but I do have an appreciation for, um, you know, how that, how the, the text and the, the sort of poetic aspects, um, you know, come together in, in, some of those, uh, in some of those works. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 